Hello everybody, this is the second sermon looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Today we're looking at Matthew 5 verses 13 to 20 and the sermon is entitled Fulfilling the Law. Salt in the wrong place is a disaster. Growing up we used to go around my grandparents' house for dinner once a week. It was always a treat and my brother and I were spoilt rotten. However, on one occasion, all was not what it seemed. My grandma lovingly served up apple crumble and custard. Yum. One of my favourites. Only this time, one mouthful in, and I was spitting it back into the bowl. Why? My grandmother had mistakenly made the custard with salt rather than sugar. It was foul, let me tell you. And rather mercilessly, we never let her forget it. Even at her funeral, we retold the story of the salty custard. However, salt in the right place is a delight. Just imagine fresh fish and chips by the seaside. A sprinkle of salt makes it dance and sparkle. It enhances the flavour. Salt then is powerful, distinctive. A very small amount can make or break a plate of food. In ancient times, salt was not just used as a flavouring, but most commonly as a preservative. You packed salt around fresh fish and meat to stop it rotting and going bad in the days long before refrigeration. But again, for this to work, the salt had to remain distinctive. In Israel, some of the rock formations naturally contained salt, so the food was packed within these rocks. But over time, that salt leaches out of those formations and eventually they are good for nothing. For the food to remain wholesome, you have to move it and pack it all over again. There was a third use of salt in the ancient world. Some farmers used it as a fertiliser, strengthening crop growth on their land. So in all these ways, salt is good, very good. It is a powerful substance made up of small individual grains. But when a few of those grains come together, it can have a great impact. Salt enhances flavour. Salt prevents decay. And salt encourages growth. But for any of those to work, the salt must remain distinctive. Distinctively salt. Light is also utterly distinctive. That is, or after all, precisely how it works. It shines in the darkness. Today, lighthouses guide ships through the rocks to safe harbour by piercing the storm with a ray of hope. Gardeners use growing lamps through the night as plants grow up towards them. Surgeons use lasers to burn away the darkness of cataracts in the eyes. Light is used to heal and restore. Spotlights in the theatre focus people's attention on what is important in front of them. In all these ways, light is good. Light is useful precisely because it is distinctively different to dark. And again, a small amount of light can have an astonishing effect as it diffuses through the black. Once light has shone, darkness is never the same again. 
In ancient Israel, there was, of course, no electricity, no streetlights, no neon signs. Imagine a tired and weary traveller journeying long distance, arriving at a village late at night. Exhausted, you are looking for board and shelter. In the gloom, what would you do? You would hunt out the home with the lamp burning within it. Those small clay lamps burning olive oil through a wick were the sign of warmth, welcome, hospitality that you long for. You see, this is nothing new. Human beings have always been attracted to light. Because darkness is frightening and unsettling, cold and isolating. Like moths to a flame, so humans too. Light is one of the most powerful magnets on the planet. And it's purely because of its distinctiveness. There is no doubt that the very first thing Jesus does, after his dramatic announcement of the kingdom in the opening of his Sermon on the Mount that we read last week, is that he calls his followers to be distinctive. Distinctive salt that flavours and preserves and promotes growth. Distinctive light that guides and welcomes and soothes. And what does Jesus think that distinctive life looks like? Well, he's already laid it out in the Beatitudes. A distinctive life is a humble life, a merciful life, a life lived with a pure heart. A life that seeks to make peace. A life lived with loyal faith and courageous devotion. We were struck last week by how the Beatitudes throw the kingdom of God open to the most unlikely of people. The people who have done least to deserve their admittance. The kingdom is thrown open to the poor and the broken, the mourners and the bowed down, the oppressed and the persecuted. In the kingdom of God, these people find themselves inexplicably blessed. But perhaps the greatest part of that blessing is that these waifs and strays of society, these rejected down and outs, now have something precious. In the kingdom, they have distinctive purpose. As soon as Jesus announces his blessings in the Beatitudes, he announces what the recipients are to do with them. They are blessed to be a blessing to others. For those who find themselves graciously invited into the kingdom of God, they now must realise that they have to start living like the king. They are to become distinctive And Jesus says that when they do, small like grains of salt though they are, powerful things will start to happen. The dark world will never be the same again once the light has begun to shine. Indeed, rather than walking away and rejecting these victims of society, the world will come streaming to them, seeking them out, wanting to know what they have got that is so special. And as they tell them the good news of Christ, slowly but surely the light will grow in strength and the darkness will be pushed further and further back and God himself will be praised. This is the call of Christ's kingdom, for everyone within it to be distinctive, as distinctive from the society at large as salt and light. 
But actually, for the original hearers of this sermon, this calling was nothing new. The calling on Israel had always been for them to be distinctive. They were to stand out as God's people, a holy nation set apart for his purposes in the world. And the Old Testament is unequivocal as to what God's purpose was in calling Israel. They were to be distinctive in order to bless those around them. Just listen to these verses as the prophet Isaiah calls the people back to God's purpose for them. Isaiah 42, 6-7 I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49, 6. I will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In Isaiah 2, it's even more explicit. Isaiah speaks of God's people as a city on a hill, a city that all the nations will stream into and once there make peace. In the city of God, people's disputes will be settled, weapons of destruction turned into farm tools, and people refuse to train for war anymore. But here is the key part to that vision. What is it that Isaiah thinks attracts the people of the world into the city of God? It is light. And what form does that light come in? The light shines, Isaiah says, when God's people keep the law. The Old Testament is emphatic. If Israel had lived by God's law, they would have shone brightly and all these wonderful things that we have just read would have taken place. The needy would have been helped. The captives would have been released. Peace would have been made and salvation brought. Keeping the law would have brought an irresistible and distinctive force of good into the world. The problem was, of course, Israel had repeatedly failed to live like that. Rather than striving to keep the law, they had run roughshod over it. Every time they took on another idol or another god, every time they fought amongst themselves, every time they exploited the poor and widows and orphans, every time they treated their neighbours like scum, the law had been broken. And every time the law was broken, the salt lost some of its saltiness. It was trampled in the mud. Every time the law was broken, a little more of the light was snuffed out, leaving the world in increasing darkness. And over the years, God's people had lost their distinctiveness. And as Jesus arrived on our planet, the vast majority were just the same as the world around them, operating in darkness. It's really important we see that as soon as Jesus has announced the arrival of this kingdom in the Beatitudes, this undeserved kingdom of grace and forgiveness and inclusion, he then calls the people back to their original purpose. He calls his followers back to the law. But here is the thing. Just as Jesus's call was for his listeners to be distinctive, that call itself comes in an utterly distinctive way. Jesus has not just come to teach people the law, they knew it already. Rather, he's come to fulfil it. 
And in fulfilling it, he has come to raise the standards of the people to a whole new level. Jesus believes that human attitudes and behaviour matter. And throughout the rest of this sermon, he's going to call his listeners to attitudes and behaviours that surpass by far the religious and the law teachers in the land. They will be distinctive even to them. This will take a little further explanation. In Jesus's day, the Pharisees were a Jewish sect who were also committed to calling the Jews back to God's law. The Pharisees believed that if all the people kept all the law for just one day, God's Messiah would come and rescue them from the Romans. Consequently, they were harsh and overbearing, legalistic and unforgiving. They zealously tried to follow the law to the letter. They even invented a whole new list of lighter rules in an attempt to ring-fence the law and really make sure that no one broke it. The Pharisees literally dictated what you could eat, drink, wear, say and do. The problem was, what began as good intentions soon became a power game, a game of control, of prestige. As the Pharisees became the guardians of what was right and wrong and who was in or out, power corrupted them. And as soon as that happened, the rules they invented became an intolerable burden on the people. Just like powerful politicians today who uphold the tax rules but cheat their expenses. Powerful clerics who teach sexual immorality but abuse children. Powerful parents who discipline their offspring by swearing at them. The Pharisees have become absolute hypocrites. In their desperate striving to ring-fence the law, they have forgotten what the law was supposed to be all about. God's law was never meant to be punitive. It was meant to be about blessing. By Jesus' days, the Pharisees wildly gesticulated their condemnation and flounced around in their long robes for attention and preached their holier-than-thou sermons. They were not helping the poor and the needy. They were not helping the people that the Beatitudes spoke to. Rather, they were making life more difficult for them. In fact, the Pharisees spent so long talking about rules... They never practically helped anyone. And as we read our passage, we soon realise that Jesus will not stand for this hypocrisy any longer. Jesus knows the law was inspired by God. He knows how much it can benefit others, and so he's come to fulfil it. And in doing so, he's going to show the people how to truly live it out in their lives as well. In verse 20, Jesus issues a huge challenge to the crowd listening to him. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. At that point, the people would have looked on jaw to the floor in amazement. That statement seemed impossible. How could they possibly be more righteous than the perfectionist law-obsessed Pharisees? But in the next few chapters, Jesus is going to make that clear. Stop being hypocritical. Stop fussing over the words and burdening people with legality. Stop being exclusive and start loving. Stop keeping the letter of the law whilst forgetting the spirit of what it's all about. 
The law is designed to make you a light to the needy people living in a dark world who really need your help. It's so important we realise what Jesus is calling for in this sermon. It's not new legislation. It's not a new rule book of the kingdom. Instead, after forgiving our past mistakes, he's calling for transformation of our hearts. In fact, Jesus has come to give his people a new heart with new desires and a new spirit living inside them. Jesus has just pronounced, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is announcing, that those who want to live for God will enter his kingdom. And there they'll be filled with God's spirit and with God's spirit living inside them, it will become possible for them to keep the law to be truly distinctive. With the Spirit as our conscience and guide, we will be able to live differently, to be salt and light in the world. We will be able to live a life of love that blesses others. And Jesus has come to call us back to that task and make it possible for all of us. And over the next few weeks, we will see how this call to be salt and light will impact every area of our lives. It will require us to live and speak truth in the ordinariness of every day, sharing faith with our neighbour. It will require us to be caring, polite and kind, to offer people our seat on the bus, even at the risk of being deemed patronising. It will require us to be just, welcoming and forgiving. To challenge the climate of hostility towards migrants and refugees. To join the worldwide fight against racism. It will require us to be honest, dedicated, loyal. To be a model employee and a faithful spouse. It will require us to love and to love at all costs. And in those moments when we begin to waver and start to feel that it's just too hard to live as salt and light, we shall look at the cross and remember that Jesus has gone before us. A man who is human in every way like us and yet fulfilled every word of this calling a grain of salt that changed the flavour of everything, a beacon of light that lets us see. Let us live with higher standards than the world, to be distinctive, so the world will take notice and we can point them to Jesus. Let us accept the offer of God's kingdom, but let's begin to live like the King.